You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hello, this is Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas, here with my delightful, dazzling, darling partners, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. Hey, everybody. And Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And we are joined again by Dr. Mark Ratner at Therologics, who is our resident supplement vitamin specialist, who is just a walking encyclopedia. But before we delve into the depths of his brain, I seem to be on a D theme right today. You are on a D thing. Yeah. Dazzling, darling. But hey, Carrie, but you didn't give Mark's official title. It's really impressive for his official title. So Mark, give us your official title at Therologics. My official title is, I guess, I'm chief science officer. I'm one of the docs that founded the company 20 years ago. We've been around 20 years now, and I'm a board-certified urologist. And we started off really focused on urology and male fertility. And so it was sort of a natural extension for us to start getting into all aspects of fertility treatment. And we branched out into a bunch of other specialties as well. We do rheumatology. We do pain management stuff. We've got some cannabinoid products that are now in development. So, yeah. I'm going to avoid the obvious D words coming from a urologist and go more into the other D words that we were talking about a few minutes ago, which is more the delicious and delectable. Because you were talking about how you like to cook and how a lot of your cooking is based from your time in New Orleans. And I spent a bunch of time in Atlanta for fellowship and so developed a love of shrimp and grits and fried green tomatoes and a lot of those foods. And so what's your favorite to prepare from that region of the country? The thing I enjoy the most, I think probably is gumbo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a project. It takes the better part of a day. Wow. I was in New Orleans almost nine years. I did medical school and my residency. And during those years, I learned to cook everything from etouffee to jambalaya and gumbo. So it just really became something I love to do. And um, But they're all generally projects. Yeah, they seem really challenging. Like as far as cooking goes, it seems like those would be like the top level as far as trying to figure out how to get all the ingredients in there in the right amounts. My roommate in medical school used to make gumbo and it was an event. (laughs) All the prep work and everything else. So it's hours and hours. But the New Orleans cuisine is fantastic. It's an amazing, uh, the whole city is amazing. It's got its own cuisine. It's got its own architecture. They've got their own way of speaking. For a guy from New York, originally from New York, I mean, I drove down there to start medical school and it was like, whoa, where am I? (laughs) (laughs) So you spent most of your time in med school and residency cooking. I'm sure you never really like went drinking in the French Quarter or anything. It sounds like you just spent the time cooking. and Just occasionally. But people assume that, you know, oh, my God, how do you do anything seriously in New Orleans? You know, after a while, you kind of have to settle into routine there. Yeah. You can't go to the French Quarter every weekend, I guess. Exactly. But we were there for the beginning of the jazz festival and it was a a terrific time. Really great. That sounds awesome. All right. So Susan, do we have questions today? We do. We do. Okay. Finding your ladies podcast has been a true blessing to me. I am 38 years old and going into IVF next month when my cycle starts. I've had a miscarriage when I was 18 and a tubal pregnancy when I was 26 that caused the removal of the tube. HSG shows that my other tube is flowing, but with my age and history, my doctor recommended IVF. 
I had started my first cycle this month only to be called to stop injections due to the embryologist not being available until later the next month. This was emotional for me and with the already emotional IVF ride. I just want to make sure I'm giving myself the best chance as it is this next month. Do you have any recommendations? Outcome of people in my age range, my AMH is 5.2. Oh, wow. That's a great AMH. Awesome AMH. In case you didn't know, there's some supplements we're going to talk about in just a little bit that may be helpful. (laughs) 38 with an AMH like that, you've got a lot going for you. And I think this is one of those situations where I tell my patients, you are older, you are not old. Okay. Um, you know, we get lots of 38 year olds pregnant. I mean, yes, it would be great if you were 28, but you're not. So that's okay. 38 doesn't make most of us sweat, especially with the AMH of five something. Yeah. So I'd say go for it. Have positive, good juju vibes. <laughs> All right. So let's start going through some of the supplements that we hear about. So we frequently get patients who come in and say, I'm about to start my cycle and I want to do absolutely everything. And so we go through some of the logistical common sense things of don't smoke, don't drink, don't pick up a cocaine habit right now. Like the, the obvious, <laughs> Don't train for a marathon right now. Don't train for a marathon right now. But a lot of people ask questions about, I'm willing to take any supplement and what should I be taking? And that's something where this discussion is designed to go through that in detail to figure out not only what supplements to take, but also what you look for, because not all supplements are created equal. Supplements are not regulated by the FDA in the same way that you know your blood pressure medication is or our IVF meds are. And just because something is a supplement or natural-ish does not necessarily mean it's helpful or could potentially be harmful. Mm-hmm. Supplements are drugs too. Let's start with the easy ones. <laughs> Prenatal vitamins. I always recommend those. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Every woman trying to conceive is should be on a prenatal. That's pretty uncontroversial at this point. You know, I think the, the easiest thing to do is to start with some very basic rules about supplements. Because, I mean, you walk into the drugstore or GNC or you go to Amazon and there are just thousands and thousands of different products. And so it's probably good to have a few basic rules in the back of your head as you're trying to sort through all of that. Kind of one of the first ones I tell people is, look, if you see a product and it looks like it's just crazy expensive, it probably is. Uh, Supplements, with a few exceptions, are generally inexpensive to manufacture. There are some ingredients, things like CoQ10, that are expensive and can crank the price up a little bit. But a basic prenatal, should be relatively inexpensive. And so that's one of the first rules. Another rule is to watch out for herbal products. And this is especially important, something like a prenatal. At least multiple times a week, I'm like, ask, can I drink this tea? Can I have this herb? This is great. Herbal products are, you know, as you pointed out, they're not regulated by the FDA. No supplements are. Doesn't mean that you cannot find supplements. And we'll talk about that in a second. It doesn't mean you can't find supplements that are independently certified. But here's the point. Herbal products are virtually impossible to certify. And there are certain herbal components that you really do want to stay away from. You mentioned green tea. It's a perfect example. There are supplement products out there that contain green tea extract. And it has been now shown in two or three pretty big studies. These are what we call epidemiologic studies, meaning they look at large populations And then they say, okay, what kind of trends are we seeing in these populations? It turns out that green tea intake, or actually any tea intake, the more tea that you have in the periconceptional period, that means up to like three months prior to conception, and then in the first 
month after conception, the more tea you drink, the greater your risk of a neural tube defect. Really? I didn't know that. And is that any kind of tea or just green tea? Any tea. Wow. And the reason for that is because teas contain polyphenols. And the primary one, we call it EGCG, epigallocatechin gallate. This is an antifolate compound. This is a compound that works in the very same way as methotrexate, which is a drug that blocks folate metabolism. And so it's been shown that if you have, on average, two cups of tea a day in that periconceptional period, you double your risk of a neural tube defect, meaning like spina bifida. Three cups a day, you triple your risk. So does that mean that in Asian countries, they see considerably more neural tube defects? Yes. Huh. Interesting. That's amazing. So, I mean, the point here is that there are products being sold out there, fertility for women type products, which contain green tea extract. And it's just totally wrongheaded. There's another issue, and that is when you look at the label on a product, which is called the supplement facts label, every supplement has to have this on their bottle label. Sometimes when you look at that box, you'll see something that's called a proprietary blend. This is like one of the dark secrets of the supplement business, okay? That's a way that you can hide the content from the consumer. You don't have to tell them how much of each of those individual components in that proprietary blend you're actually putting into the product. All you do is you tell them the total weight of that mix of products. Wow. You don't have to itemize it. This is a little loophole that the government has allowed the supplement industry to use. Stay away from products that have proprietary blends. Essentially, especially in a reproductive timeframe, you really want to stay with products that have been independently content certified through a nonprofit independent certification program. And there's really only two in the United States. As you said, the FDA really does very little in terms of meaningful oversight for supplement quality. So the two programs that exist, one is called NSF, the other one is called USP. And If a product is certified through one of those programs on the bottle label, you will see their logo. You'll see either the NSF logo or the USP logo. Those are both nonprofit, independent content certification programs. So what you basically can then depend on is what you think you're getting in that bottle, in those pills, is exactly what you're getting. And this is absolutely key because, you know, there's over 100,000 products being sold in the United States in the supplement world. And less than one half of 1% of them go through this kind of independent third-party content certification. Now, you may see occasionally, especially on the internet, on Amazon, you'll see products that say made in a GMP certified facility. GMP means good manufacturing practices. They'll write that as if they're trying to reassure you that, you know, hey, but in fact, that's the law. They might as well have written, we're not breaking the law in our business. Every product must be made in a GMP certified facility, okay? It doesn't really guarantee you anything. Another piece of marketing sort of ledger domain is that they'll say pharmaceutical grade. You know, this is a pharmaceutical grade product. And again, it's just nonsense. It's just marketing. There's no real uniform definition. There's no agreed upon definition of what that means in the supplement world. There are three other certification logos that you'll see. One is called Consumer Lab, not Consumer Reports, but Consumer Lab. One is called Lab Door, and the other one is called Informed Choice. But don't be fooled because these are actually for-profit companies that will certify products for a supplement company, but then they earn money 
by making referrals of those products. So these are for profit operations. And the only two that are really sort of independent, completely nonprofit, NSF, USP. Interesting. Yeah. So let's start, you said, let's start with prenatal vitamins. That's a great place to start. (laughs) You know, one of the things that I think is key to picking a good prenatal, one of the important nutrients is vitamin D. I think most fertility practices these days are checking vitamin D levels on their patients, sort of baseline as part of the screening blood work. I would like to interrupt on that because I know I don't, but I just assume everybody's deficient. Yes, that's what we, it was so expensive to check their levels that we just stopped checking levels and just said, everybody needs to be on vitamin D. Vitamin D is the only vitamin that we actually have a reliable blood test to check a level. And you are right and probably assuming most people are deficient. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we say deficient, what are we talking about? Okay, so if you get this blood test done, a normal 25 OHD or a normal vitamin D level is above 30. If you're below 20, we say that's deficiency. And if you're between 20 and 30, we say that's insufficiency. So the question that obviously then comes to mind is how much vitamin D do you need to take if you are low? And the answer is, well, one size does not fit all. You need more vitamin D. If your patient walks in at, let's say, 15, pretty low, that woman is going to need significantly more vitamin D on a daily basis to kind of fill the tank, so to speak, than a woman who comes in at 25. We do know that roughly two-thirds of women in the United States are below 30. And so there's a ton of evidence about the importance of vitamin D. We know that vitamin D is really important for a healthy pregnancy. Especially in our PCOS patients. Oh, yeah. No question about that. They've correlated vitamin D levels with the risk of having a C-section, with the risk of developing preeclampsia, with the risk of preterm labor, with the risk of bacterial vaginosis, all of those things. The risk of those things is reduced during pregnancy if the woman's vitamin D level is normal. Then the question is, okay, what about getting pregnant? Does the vitamin D situation really affect your chances of getting pregnant? And, you know, I think the answer at this point is it's pretty certain that it does. There have actually been about 16, 15, 16 studies that have been published in the past 10, 12 years. And the majority of those studies have shown that there is a strong correlation between the woman's vitamin D status and her chances of getting pregnant, not only through natural conception, but through fertility treatment as well. Also, women who have other autoimmune conditions, they are generally recommended to have a vitamin D level, usually over 40 or 50 is what's recommended by our endocrinology colleagues and that type of thing. So even though you may be normal, you may not be normal enough. Right. No, that's a great point. We've used this basic little kind of um, treatment algorithm for how to fill the tank. I mean, if the goal is to try and get a woman above that normal range of 30, within a couple of months, how much do they need? So the basic rule of thumb is somebody who is at baseline less than 20 should probably take 6,000 units of vitamin D per day for about eight weeks. And they'll, about 95% of the time, that'll get them over 30. If they're between 20 and 25 at baseline, they need about 4,000 per day. And if they're at 25 or higher, 2,000 a day. And 2,000 a day is really sort of what maintenance is at this point for most adults as well. That'll keep you in that good range to keep the tank full, so to speak. So there's lots of different types of vitamin D you can buy. Fortunately, they're all pretty inexpensive. If you want to take, say, 2,000 units of vitamin D per day, 
you're talking about three, four, five cents per day. Not a whole lot of money. There's different forms of vitamin D. You can take it as an, in drops or you can take it as a pill. Does that matter? It really doesn't. No. I mean, the key thing is that for most people, I think a pill is easier only because, you know, you just basically don't have to... You don't have to taste it? <laughs> well, you don't taste it. You don't measure it. You don't have to worry about, am I, is this drop? You know, did I put in one drop or did, did it accidentally make two drops? Is the drop the same size every day? Sometimes my patients come into me and they're like, oh, I was deficient. So my other doctor put me on 50,000 units a week and they're all like super worried about having this prescription for 50,000 units a week. Is that really any different than taking 6,000 a day? Yeah, it is. That's uh, a great question. Okay, so prescription vitamin D, not to get too far down the rabbit hole on vitamin D, but vitamin D is technically not a vitamin. And the reason we can say that is because what's the definition of a vitamin? A vitamin is you know, a substance that we need in our bodies for normal metabolism, but that we cannot make in our body. We have to get it from our diet. That's the definition of a vitamin, okay? What's the definition of a hormone? A hormone is a substance made in one part of the body and then acts in other parts. And so, you know, you make insulin in your pancreas and it acts throughout your body. Okay, well, vitamin D is a hormone. Vitamin D is not really a vitamin because we make it in our skin. Oh, that is interesting. In response to sunlight, we make vitamin D. But the type of vitamin D we make is called colocalciferol or what we call vitamin D3. Prescription vitamin D is vitamin D2. And the difference between D3 and D2, the name, the scientific name for vitamin D2 is ergocalciferol. It's plant vitamin D. A woman who's taking 50,000 units once a week is actually taking plant vitamin D, which only is about one third as effective as the human form. Now, in Europe and in the UK and in Australia, vitamin D2 prescription vitamin D here in the States is outlawed. You cannot get it. This is something that endocrinologists, unfortunately, are still somewhat clueless about. Vitamin D3 is cheap, three, four to five cents a day. And you can take it by mouth. And every prenatal, every multivitamin, unless it's vegan vitamin D, somebody who's vegan and doesn't want to get vitamin D from an animal source would then take vitamin D2 because it comes from plants. Where do we get vitamin D3 commercially? That was my next question. <laughs> this is crazy. Listen, I love, I have plenty of friends who are vegan, but commercially vitamin D3 is made from lanolin, which comes from sheep's wool. The sheep's not dying in the process of giving us the lanolin, right? But because it comes from an animal, a vegan wouldn't take vitamin D3, a strict vegan. So that's the difference between D3 and D2. You gotta take D3, it's the human form and it's the most effective form by far. So that's vitamin D. Now, you know, if you're taking a good prenatal, you're probably gonna get enough vitamin D in there as long as you're not super low to begin with. So one of the things that's really important for us is we make, I'm talking about Theralogics now, we make a distinction between prenatal vitamins that are formulated for women trying to conceive and those that are formulated for women who are already pregnant, okay? 
the key thing here is that the prenatal vitamins that you can buy at the drugstore or you can buy for the most part on Amazon, the prescription prenatals that are still out there, amazingly, because those things are truly crazy. I mean, they're grossly overpriced and they don't really have anything in their formulations that the over-the-counter products don't have. But almost all the prenatals that are for sale in the United States are what we call gestational prenatals, meaning they are formulated for women who are already pregnant. And the nutritional needs of a woman who is trying to conceive and may be trying to conceive for three months, six months, maybe even longer, those nutritional needs are very different than a woman who is already into an established pregnancy. What are the main differences? Iron, okay. Once you're pregnant, you need a lot more iron. Prenatal vitamins that have a lot of iron, they tend to be very constipating and they cause a lot of side effects. So a woman who's getting her period on a regular basis every month really only needs the recommended daily allowance is 18 milligrams of iron per day. Most prenatals have 30, 40, 50 milligrams, which is way too much for somebody who's just trying to get pregnant. Folic acid, DHA, all nutrients that the needs change once you're pregnant. Our approach has basically been to create two different types of prenatals. We've got preconception prenatals and we've got gestational prenatals. I always worry when somebody's taking a big pill like a prenatal vitamin or if they're taking a bunch of supplements at the same time about absorption. And I realize I'm asking this question to a urologist, but in our field, a lot of times for things like estrogen, if patients don't, if they take it orally and they don't have good effect on their endometrium, we'll actually have them put it in their vagina and do it vaginally. And we all know that that typically works a whole lot better than if they take it orally. Any thoughts on vaginal, and I know this sounds crazy talking to a urologist, but we talk about to patients about it all the time. Any thoughts about oral versus vaginal? Particularly if they don't tolerate it well. The first thing that I have to point out, though, is that the definition of a dietary supplement or nutritional supplement, the FDA's definition is that it's a substance that has to be ingested by mouth and absorbed from the GI tract. Okay. You'll see melatonin that's sublingual where you know, dissolve it under your tongue and it gets into your system very quickly. Even a sublingual route of administration means it's no longer a supplement because it's transmucosal. It has to be absorbed from the gut to be a dietary supplement. Logistics aside, with your medical knowledge of absorption, you think there'd be any difference? Like, is there a big difference between sublingual versus oral? Yes, absolutely. The main difference is that you avoid what's called the first pass effect. Stuff that goes in through the gut, through your stomach or your small intestine, it gets into the portal vein and then goes directly into the liver. The liver's job is to start chewing that stuff up, breaking it down. And so we call that the first pass effect where drugs and supplements, if you can take them in through the skin or under the tongue, like submucosally, those are going to avoid the first pass effect. And it definitely changes the bioavailability. No question about it. Yeah. So to go back to just general content of prenatals, we know we need vitamin, <laughs> vitamin D in there. We know that we need iron and that women at baseline need more than men. Pregnant women at baseline need more than non-pregnant women. What else do we need to make sure that is without a doubt in that prenatal? So folic acid. And the question of folic acid versus folate, because a lot of people will ask about that. That is a great question. Okay. So folic acid is a synthetic form. The form of this vitamin that is found in food is folate. And that is the form that our body puts to use. But most of the time in the past, 
in supplements, what was used was called folic acid, which is a synthetic form of folate. And then the body would have to convert folic acid into folate. And the way that the body makes that conversion is with an enzyme called MTHFR. I mean, it's a really, really long name. Let's not go down that entire road though today. <laughs> okay. okay. And so the, the bottom line is not everybody can convert folic acid into folate with the same efficiency. And so now the best prenatals don't have folic acid anymore. Instead, they have the activated form already there. It's called folate instead of folic acid. And you want to look for a prenatal that's got what's called 1.7 milligrams, uh, and they call it DFE, which is dietary folate equivalents. 1.7 milligrams or 1,700 micrograms, same thing, DFE. That's sort of like the old equivalent of having a milligram of folic acid. So how does L-methylfolate fit in there? It's just pure folate. So like our old thing of you need to be four milligrams of folic acid, you're going to need four times 1.7, whatever that is. If you have somebody who you're worried about, maybe they've had a previous neural tube defect or you're worried about because they homozygous for MTHFR, if you supplement them with folate, you're overcoming that problem. Choline is another nutrient that should be in prenatals, but it isn't. It also has a very strong role in neural tube defect prevention. Also, deficiencies in choline intake increases the risk of uh, cleft palate. So choline is another important nutrient for prenatals. Iodine, really important. The American Pediatric Association has basically come out and said every prenatal needs to have at least 150 micrograms of iodine, but many of them still don't. So these are all preconception numbers. Once you're pregnant, your prenatal should have DHA, which is the omega-3 fatty acid. And you really want at least 300 milligrams a day of DHA. DHA has been very clearly shown. Adequate DHA content during pregnancy reduces the risk of preterm delivery significantly. And so, you know, back when they first sort of started pushing DHA, it was put into formulas and it was started to be put into some prenatal vitamins and the sort of like the word from the the companies that were pushing it was that mice that were given DHA could run the mazes better than mice who didn't get DHA. (laughs) You had smarter mice. So that's why we think it's a good thing to give it to our babies. Right. If you want your baby to go to Harvard, you've got to give them DHA during pregnancy and once they're born. And that's really never, unfortunately, never been proven out in good studies with humans. But The benefits of DHA in reducing preterm delivery absolutely been unequivocally shown. And to drive the point home, DHA is different than DHEA. Yes, 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 yes. yes. DHA we love. DHA is uh, docosahexanoic acid, which is like one of the two primary omega-3 fatty acids that you find in like fish oil. So the two ones are EPA and DHA. Interestingly, EPA, which is the other major omega-3, there's now some interesting studies that have been published the last two or three years showing that EPA intake while you're trying to conceive increases your chances of pregnancy, but not DHA. Hmm. So it's interesting. DHA is what you need once you're pregnant. EPA is what you need prior to pregnancy. Just a couple of quick things about prenatal vitamins. You should be able to get a good prenatal for somewhere between 10 and 20 bucks a month. Over the counter, look for one that's either NSF or USP certified. You know, there's a prenatal out there these days. It's like 90 bucks a month. 
And it's just crazy. They're giving you a lot of stuff that you just basically do not need. And even then, they're kind of uh, charging you uh, way more than they need to. The other thing that's real important is convenience and side effects. And so you want to look at, you know, how many pills a day are they asking you to take? You know, are the pills going to make you sick or not? You know, a lot of people are very familiar with that vitamin kind of taste that you can get from a lot of supplements. And again, the excess iron, too much iron, and, you know, it's going to end up causing a lot of constipation. Thank you so much for helping to guide us on all of these aspects, because there's really so much more to it than... We even necessarily get taught in medical school and residency. I don't know that I ever knew that vitamin D was a hormone. I don't think I ever knew that. Or if I did, it's long gone. <laughs> it makes sense. But it's just we didn't think about it. And every time we do one of these, there's something that I learned that I'm like, ooh, I should have known that before. I know. Like tomatoes are fruit. You know, who really knew that? The coolest thing about vitamin D is that back when I was in medical school, they taught us that vitamin D was important for one thing absorbing calcium. The reason they thought that was because vitamin D was discovered when they found that it could cure rickets. Everybody always thinks, oh, vitamin D, I get that in milk. But you know what? Milk has no vitamin D in it naturally. It's essentially the government fortifies it with vitamin D. And the reason is because back in the 1930s, they realized that absence of vitamin D caused rickets and a teaspoon of cod liver oil could cure rickets. They didn't know what it was in the cod liver oil at first. And then they discovered this secrosteroid, this hormone, vitamin D. They called it vitamin D. And one teaspoon, why does milk have 400 units per quart? It's because a teaspoon of cod liver oil has 400 units of vitamin D3 in it. Oh, And that was discovered to be the anti-rachitic dose. Interesting. It's really only in the last 30 years that they realized that vitamin D is important for everything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, There isn't a cell in our body that doesn't have a vitamin D receptor on its surface. So, I mean, I could talk to you for an hour about vitamin D. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. We love having you on. Like, I have a whole notebook full of notes. Me too. I've taken notes. You're helping to educate, re-educate us, Mark. We appreciate it. (laughs) Thanks again, guys. All right. And to our audience, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review um, in iTunes. We would love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. So hop on by, leave us a like or a follow and say hello. You can also visit us on fertility.sensensor.com to submit specific questions. All questions will be answered on the podcast anonymously for the Ask the Dot segment. So don't hold back. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. All right. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.